Well, learning evangelism is, is not something we're going to be able to do in our comfortable armchairs that we've provided for you. It's something that we can only do by, by doing, like any practical skill. And so our workshops are going to be about the doing of it, the practice of evangelism. But of course, the, one of the great troubles of just doing practice is that you don't learn to think about the process. So in real skill training, you need both practice and theory. And many of the, 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 much of the material we'll be covering talks here that I'll be giving over the next few days will be on the theory of it, although there'll be some theory in the workshops. And much of the workshops will be on the, on the, on the practical, although there'll be some practical hints here. The workshops go around these two tools that we've devised at New South Wales University over the last few years. A little tool called Two Ways to Live, which many of you may or may not have seen, but I hope will in the next little while. A little presentation of the gospel, the catechism that I wrote, actually. And the other one is a series of studies called Just for Starters, uh, basic studies for, for new Christians to help them uh, growing in their first few months as a Christian. And the two courses will deal with learning how to use this material, this kind of material. Just for starters, two ways to live. If we keep referring to that jargon, you'll now know what it's about. I was uh, fortunate and blessed by God to uh, be packed off overseas for a few years ago by my friends. <laughs> they gave me a return ticket. And uh, while in Cambridge, I met uh, some uh, Christians who were involved in ministry there and one college chaplain I spent some time with, only a day or so. Uh, we met only really in the last two weeks that uh, I was in uh, Cambridge. And he was at a moment of considerable discouragement. He was one of the very few evangelical chaplains in uh, any of the colleges there for four years and, uh, and one term. He only had two terms left of his stay inside the college that uh, he was appointed. He'd uh, made a lot of friends. He'd faithfully borne witness to the gospel of Jesus in a college that, as far as he had known, had not had an evangelical chaplain before. And very difficult situation to be in. But yet he felt that he hadn't really seen anybody converted in the four and a half years, four and a bit years he'd been there. That non-Christians liked him, that he spent an enormous amount of time with them. He had taught many Christians many things, but from the evangelistic point of view, not only he hadn't seen people converted through the ministry he'd had there, but he really hadn't seen anybody else converted through other people's ministries within the, 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 uh, the college. And there was a certain degree of defeat and depression about it. Uh, I know that feeling. We uh, know it well when you try and do something and you keep failing. There are several different responses that you have. One is to discard it and say, well, that activity is not worth doing. Another is to say, well, I don't know what to do next. Please help me. Pride hadn't overcome this man. He actually was keen for help. And a mutual friend told him about our two ways to live. And so he asked me if I could teach him two ways to live and how to uh, teach other people how to use two ways to live. Unlike uh, pleasures and privilege we have here, we had two hours together. And he wrote to me a year or so later, because I actually hadn't uh, heard from him. It was just over a year later, he wrote to me. Lovely letter. Hadn't heard a thing. I'd even almost forgotten that I'd spent those couple of with him. And he wrote, amongst other things, the last two in our college, after I'd gone through two ways to live course with you, Philip, I invited a group of six from the second years whom I knew would be enthusiastic. The third years heard of it and they came and asked if they could do a course as well. And then the first years heard of it. The last term was taken up with these three groups and was certainly the most worthwhile thing I did in the whole of my time at college. The 22 on the course shared two ways to live with between 50 and 100 others within the college during that Lent term. Of these, on the lists that were made, 12 were converted that term and included one or two quite extraordinary conversions. Several more were converted during months and one girl, the president of the Cambridge Union, was converted during the summer vacation. 
And I heard last month that the student, when some visit, students visited me, that another from the original six has become a Christian at the end of last term. And the second and third years are organising the first years of the next year, next academic year, with two ways to live. And they've already taken the new chaplain through the course. <laughs> Lovely that bit, isn't it? We've been very thrilled with how God has used the course at, at our college. It has given the Christians a new confidence to chat the gospel with friends. And we've seen some really quite prominent folk in college life converted. Well, that gave me enormous heart to think that teaching people something about evangelism is worth doing, isn't it? If that could happen in just a couple of hours with one man in a key position inside Cambridge University, it's worth keeping on teaching people about evangelism. And this little course, this very puny little booklet, my life's work, my magnum opus, <laughs> is used of God because it just seeks to present the gospel and to help Christians in undertaking this task, this skill, this ability, this act. Evangelism is something that's disliked by Christians and non-Christians. Non-Christians for obvious reasons. Christians, well, if you're a Christian, you know why you don't like it, don't you? Fear, anxiety, guilt, failure, they're all part of the track record for most Christians in evangelism. I mean, I'm all for doing it tomorrow. Or for other people to. Or if someone will come and hold my hand and don't ask me to do much. But why? Well, it's part of the spiritual battle we're in, which we'll go to in a few days' time as we talk about it. In fact, tonight's talk, we'll be looking at that spiritual battle. But there's lots of other reasons too, isn't there? It's part of the principles that we've, we've put ourselves under a law about it. You know, you live a Christian life, most of which makes sense, but there's an appendix out the side which says, and by the way, you must preach the gospel to other people. And on this 11th commandment, we find ourselves as guilty as we do on the other 10. It, it's something that we get ourselves hyped up at at a conference, just like this, I'm sorry to say. And so we get all burned up with torches underneath our seats, keen to get out there and do it, and we, we develop all the new that can be had, because obviously the old didn't work, and so if it's new, it must work. And we get our gimmicks going and we get ourselves geared up with hyperactivity of techniques and novelties and programs and methods that will be surefire hit that when we've pressed all these buttons, revival must break out in our campus and by about the third week of term, we're getting back into the library where there's a lot of good serious study that must be undertaken because God wants people to get university medals. It's that failure after being hyped up which when you do it three, four, five times, leads you to a lifelong inactivity in evangelism. Now that gives me a bit of a problem, because I want to stir you up. I want to get you going back to the campuses all fired up with this new method, this latest ultimate in gimmickry. But that's a nonsense. That's not going to work any the last gimmick. Gimmickry is our way. We put a fish sticker on the back of, our back of our car and another one, one of those ones that's got all the different lights that shine differently, reflects differently on our bag so that people will know we're a Christian. That'll make sure they won't talk to us. And we wear a big shirt which says Christian Union and ask me about it if you dare and that kind of thing. And, and we go to all the meetings and we put our posters up and it's a surefire failure. So what's this going to do? Well... Learning new skills for people who are proud is very painful. You don't like doing it and you don't want to do it. And for those of us who are accomplished at a skill, learning is despised. But for those of us who are desperate, it's marvellous. Now there's the problem. How keen are you to evangelise? Because if you're keen, there are ways we can help you. If you're not keen, though, if you think you've got your act together, or if you're too proud to actually fall off the windsurfer, then this isn't for you. It's like little training wheels on push bikes. 
If you know how to ride a push bike and someone said to you, why don't you try this, little training wheels? You say, you don't need training wheels. But you do if you're teaching a child to ride a bike in the first place, don't you? Unless you're going to be super fit and run along beside them hanging onto the handlebars and the seat. That's all right till the child learns how to do it. Then they take off with you. <laughs> little training wheels, they're marvellous. But once a child learns how to ride a bike, he can't get them off quick enough, can he? He says, I hate those things. They're stupid things. But before the child knows how to ride the bike, I'm not going to go on that bike unless I've got little training wheels to give me security. Your reaction to the ways in which we'll talk about evangelising, you've got to do like the reactions of children to little training wheels. If you want to know how to get up on the bike desperately enough, you'll be too, only too happy for our little training wheels. You'll only be too happy for them, because they'll help you. If you know how to ride a bike, you'll say, oh, that's not worth having. But if you know how to ride the bike, you might like to teach some other people. And if you're going to teach other people, you'll need little training wheels. So what we're providing for you is a twofold thing. For those who are off and running, we're providing you a way to teach others to come running with you. For those who have run off the bike so many times they don't think that they could ever get up there and stay upright, we hope to provide with you some methods, some techniques to get you upright and moving. Once you've learned how to do that, then you can do some of the other fantastic things people do with bikes and their wheelies and their hands off and all the rest of that kind of fancy stuff you might like to do. We're not going to teach any of the fancy stuff, it's just how to get the bike moving forwards. It's helpful to be forward moving on push bikes. I've never tried it backwards. Now then, talking about it like that though, has the great problem that we move you just into the new program, the latest thing, follow these steps, place you under laws and rules and regulations, you must do it this way. And we don't actually believe in that. At least I certainly don't. I'm very keen that we actually develop a whole range of ways of evangelising and that we do it in the end freely of our own personalities. Because of our own love for the Lord Jesus Christ, we will express what we know of him and have learned from him. And that will be different for us, each one. I'm keen that we actually understand the reason for evangelism, and it's not because there is a rule that Christians must go and evangelise. I think it's very important that we learn evangelism as a part of Christian living, and not as the one commandment the other ten having been removed. Maybe there is a second one called having a quiet time, but we don't obey that either. They want us to be under rules and regulations, so therefore it's important we wrestle back with our Bibles about the whole theology of evangelism itself. What it is, why we do it, how we do it, how it fits into the Christian life. So that when we come to the mechanics of sharing the gospel with someone, we have an understanding that comes from the word of God about the whole activity, and we'll be doing it rightly. And when we come to developing our own style of doing it down the track, we will do it in accordance with the scriptures and not in defiance or ignorance of what the scriptures are about. So let's turn to our Bibles and to Jesus. One of my very corny friends says to me that God only had one son, and he was an evangelist. It's a bit corny, but I like it. For that's what Jesus was. He was an evangelist. Come with me to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus starting his ministry. And verse... I've bought a new Bible, and this paper that I can't turn. Every time I turn a page, I get five. Here we go, Matthew 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he returned to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake of area of Zebulun, Naphtali, to fulfil what was said through the prophet in Isaiah 9. And from that time, verse 17 on, Jesus began to preach. 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Galilee was walking by the seaside, he calls the people to be fishers of men. Run down into verse uh, 23. I've just turned two pages again. There we are. Verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people and news spread from him everywhere. Jesus starts off as a preacher of the gospel. That's where he starts his life's work. He starts off as an evangelist, as a gospel preacher. And not only is he a gospel preacher, but he is a trainer in evangelism. For one of the first things he does after he has started this preaching ministry of the gospel in verses 18 to 22 is he calls the the fishermen to become fishermen. He says, come to me, verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He is involved in evangelism, in fishing for people from the beginning. I love fishing. The art of fishing is really not doing nothing. The art of fishing is getting the fish where you are. Is that right? And Jesus is using the image. He uses the images for several reasons. Old Testament background to this one, but we won't go into that. But it's a very obvious image though, isn't it? Jesus calls upon these people to follow him to share in his work of evangelism, which has to do with catching men. has to do with bringing them into the boat. Right from the very beginning of his ministry, evangelism is there. And he is himself an evangelist and a trainer in evangelism at the same time. Turn with me across this gospel for a moment to, show, to look at how Jesus is single-minded in his evangelism. We'll come back to Matthew, but Mark brings it out beautifully in his opening chapter. Hope you're a good skim reader. Because we'll just look quickly at Mark 1, bits and pieces. Arts faculty, I'll try and do it a bit slower. Verse 21, sorry, yeah, verse 21, you'll see that uh, Jesus is driving out an evil spirit from the uh, man in the synagogue at Capernaum. But what he is doing is not actually going in to drive out evil spirits. What he is doing at the time is teaching. Verse 21, he's been teaching the people, and people are amazed at his teaching because he teaches one with authority. And then the issue of the authority over the evil spirits is brought out. Then verse 29 the news of him having spread all over Galilee, verse 29 to 31, he goes home and he cures Simon's mother-in-law. And then verse 32, people gather from everywhere. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, and the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. And he also drove out many of the demons, but he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. I bet they were. I mean, Medibank has nothing on this bloke. There he is healing people. All kinds of diseases. All kinds of problems. They had all kinds of sicknesses. He seemed to be able to cure them. Demon possessions were overcome. I bet people were looking for him. They'd be knocking at the door. In fact, we're told later on they're knocking at the door so much that they can't even get in. Remember in chapter 2, verse 1 following there, where the paralytic is let down through the roof, verses 1 to 12, deal with that one, where there is such a crowd gathered in that they can't actually carry this man down to the centre of the room, so they have to rip the roof off to let him in. I mean, Jesus is popular. When people do real miracles, you can't get near them. When people are really healing people, then you can rest assured that the crowds will come. Now, not these fake phony miracles, you know, the, the, the lengthening of the leg, which I call the leg-pulling ministry, you know, the, the helping people with, with those vague backaches and the occasional headaches and those kinds of... People are actually being cured of real diseases, not just holding a healing service in a place where everybody's healthy, but going in amongst the chief hospitals and actually healing people, then you wouldn't be able to get near that kind of person. The kind of man who can walk along a hospital bed and say, get up, go home, you're right, get up, go home, you're right, get up, go home. If you get, if you get a faith healer who can do that, the crowds will flock in. 
That's what happened to Jesus everywhere he goes. Indeed, look down what happens with a man with leprosy. Verse 40 of chapter 1, a man with leprosy came to him, begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean, filled with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand, touched him. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once, so the strong warnings see that you tell no one about this. Go show yourself to the priest and do what the Old Testament requires, you see. And instead, verse 45, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. Marvellous, really. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And, of course, the normal human reaction is he tells everybody. Jesus is going to all the world to preach the gospel, and what do they do? Lock themselves up in Jerusalem. Don't tell anybody. Right? Classic perversity of human nature. He talks freely about it, and look what happens. As a result, Jesus couldn't enter into a town, but stayed out in the, in the lonely places. They weren't too lonely with Jesus there. Why? Because people still came to him from everywhere. Jesus is under tremendous pressure to do this healing ministry. Seems a right ministry to do. Seems a messianic ministry to do. Does not the Messiah come so that the, the blind will see and the, the deaf will hear and the... I always get these wrong. You know, the blind will walk and the deaf will... You know, it's a hard one. But you see it in chapter 7 of Mark's Gospel. All those good things are going to happen. Jesus is coming doing it. Surely here is the great moment in his life. And yet look at that little section, verses 35 to 39... Because Jesus goes out to pray in a lonely place. Well, prayer's a good thing. But now Simon and the companions find him and they say, come on home, we've gathered the crowd. They're there in their thousands. Do your thing. And Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else. Why? We've gathered the crowd. You want to go find other sick people? All right, we'll go somewhere else and find other sick people. That's not what he says. Let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. For that is why I have come. In fact, the healing ministry of Jesus got in the way of his evangelism. And that's illustrated well in that next paragraph, you see, with the leper. Healed, yes, out of the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, but because of his healing, because he blabbed about it, Jesus wasn't able to go into the villages and preach the gospel anymore. It stood in the way of his evangelism. Brings out again, too, with that poor paralytic, poor man, paralysed all these years. Must be terribly dimity, lowered down through the roof to say nothing of the fear. You know, all those four blokes have to let the rope down at the same time, or you get yourself in a terrible botch, don't you? Huh? I mean, you wouldn't like it. And so Jesus looks at him and he says, Get up and walk. No. He says, Your sins are forgiven you. Big deal. Oh, why do I my sins forgiven? You checked out my legs. Which would you prefer, your sins forgiven or your legs cured? I know what the Australian believes. Not the slightest shadow of a doubt what the Australian would say at that moment. Are you Australians or Christians? Two are quite different, you know. Well, Jesus is concerned with bringing the gospel of forgiveness preaching this message. He's come to preach. He's an evangelist and he won't be distracted from it even by good things. Marvellous things. Things that are right and true and godly from which his own compassion leads him to do. He still won't be sidetracked from evangelism for that is what he has come to do. And you ponder for a moment and of course it's like that, isn't it? And if Jesus came to cure the illnesses of the world, he was a complete and utter failure, wasn't he? What did he do? Cure a few hundred people here? Maybe a thousand? Let's stretch it. Maybe he cured 10,000 first century Jews. How many millions of people have died of sickness since then? <laughs> he was a dud. If that's what he came to do. It's not what he came to do. He came to do what? This is a true saying. Worthy of all men to be received. If you're an Anglican, you know it well. If you're not, well, you've got other benefits in life. <laughs> True saying, and worthy of all men to be received. It's actually in the Bible, though. It's not in the prayer book. Well, it's there too. To save sinners, isn't it? That's what he comes to do. Let's get it right. Jesus comes as an evangelist. But not only an evangelist, but a trainer of evangelists. And so, back to Matthew's Gospel, he calls these people to be fishers of men with him. 
He has come, we're told, in chapter 4, that quote from Isaiah, chapter 4, verse 14 and 15, 16, he's come to be a light to those who sit in darkness. He is the light of the world. But notice what he says to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. Who is the light of the world? Jesus is and his disciples are because his disciples are coming in to do his work with him, for him. He is going to work through them. And what is his work? To be the light of the world, to bring light to those who sit in darkness, to fish for men, to call them out of their present circumstance, to follow him. And so Jesus sets off in his evangelism training class called the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6 and 7. It's a great misfortune that most people, when they comment on, on the Sermon on the Mount, which I'd love to give you the series on it today, but some of you come from our campus and you've heard me do it five times already. Most people, when they do the Sermon on the Mount, just do it as if Matthew started at chapter 5. You must place the Sermon on the Mount in its context. And the context of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' evangelism. And what he is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is training his disciples in evangelism. And you know, he doesn't mention two ways to live. Well, he does, really. It's down in verses uh, 13, 14 of chapter 7. The narrow and the broad. There are two ways to live. That actually is there, although there's a misnomer there, really. One of them's not about life, it's about death. Two ways to be, if you like. But the Sermon on the Mount is his discipleship training program. If you're going to be the fishers for men, what must you be? And the answer is different. In a word, it's different. John Stott wrote a lovely commentary on, uh, he's not here so I can speak freely now at the moment, on, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, Christian counterculture, in which he says, chapter 6, verse 8, while it's not the grammatical topic sentence of the sermon, captures the essence of what the sermon is about. Do not be like them. That's what the sermon is about. If you're going to fish for men, you've got to be different to them. Now, of course, one of our burning passions is to be just like everybody else. We hate being different to people. We haven't got that English love of eccentricity. We have the Australian passion for conformity. But if we're going to win people for Christ, we actually have to be different to the people we're seeking to win. There is one of the great problems for Christians today. How are we to be different? Are we to wear different clothes, fish stickers and the like? No. We're to be different in the values we hold, different in our searching and thirsting for the kingdom of God and righteousness, different in the way in which we conduct our religious practices in chapter 6, in giving alms to those in, in, in need, in praying and in fasting. We're to be different in our attitude to the law as to the law in terms of adultery and murder and oaths and so on. We're to be different in judging other people. All the Sermon on the Mount is to how we as Christians are to live out the kingdom of God so that we will stand out as a bright light in a dark world. Around our uh, university there are some halls of residence, some colleges, and uh, that has always been a prime area in which we've seen people become Christians. And very often it's got to do with the fact that the Christians there are seen to be different because they're living cheek by jowl, room by room with non-Christians. And their lives can be seen to be different. But very often, to the great tragedy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the people involved, their lives can't be seen to be any different. Well, then you've got nothing to say, have you? You're not any different. If your life's no different to the people around about you, then you've got no message to bring. Jesus' challenge is to be different in our lives. Oh, and on the subject of sex too, that comes out of it in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. And we don't like reading it because it's fairly harsh. And so his training is about their lives. But it's not only about their lives, he also sends them out on the work. Look at chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel. At the end of chapter 9, he talks about the coming judgment and he prays. Chapter 9, verse 35 to 37, and he says, 
The harvest is plentiful, verse 37. Remember that passage? The workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. And then chapter 10 immediately follows, none of this chapter division, he called his 12 disciples and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. And these are the names of the 12. And verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or any town. Enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as for you, go preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, etc. So not only does he spend time teaching them, teaching them about the essential character of the kingdom and how they're to live that character and how they're to be different from those around about, not only does he go preaching the gospel to the crowds in front of them, but after a while he says, now you take that message and you go and do it. And he sends them out. And he says, before you're finished, verse 23... The Son of Man will come. The Kingdom Age will arrive. You'll never actually do this task. That's part of the reason they're not to go to the Samaritans. Part of the reason. There's others. And so he trains them. Now Matthew's Gospel finishes at a great high point that many of us know about called chapter 28. Right at the end of it there. The eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain, verse 16, where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Notice those little words, by the way. It's a little test of the authenticity of the New Testament writers. Hear the risen Lord in front of the eleven prime witnesses, the apostles, the founders of the church, the stone upon which the church is built and the pillars upon which it is raised. And what happens to them? They were still doubting. Isn't that lovely? It's lovely to know they're so human. It's lovely to know that you're not such a rotter that you have your doubts. But it's also lovely to know that Matthew was concerned about the truth. Because if you're telling a story, if you're trying to push a line, if you're trying to sell a product, you don't tell the weak points like that, do you? You would have just left that little bit out, wouldn't you? But some doubted. There's a whole apologetic you can work up on, but some doubted. You might like to try it later on. But that's not the point I'm trying to get at at the moment. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, 19, 20, there mustn't be used as the 11th commandment. Mustn't just take, well, evangelism? Great, great commission. Go. It's a misreading, a misunderstanding of that gospel teaching. But at the same time, you do need to see that Matthew 28, 19, 20 is the climax of the whole gospel message. From the beginning, when Jesus started preaching the gospel, he started calling people to be trained to be evangelists. And so where does the gospel finish? The gospel finishes when the trained evangelists are sent out into the work. Jesus' program from the beginning was shot through with evangelism. His own evangelism and his training of other people in evangelism. Now, one of our great problems is how much is this relevant to today? Oh, it's the gospel, it must be. And did not Peter tell us last night that the, taking the Old Testament words, they were written a thousand years ago, but they are for you. Presumably the New Testament, if it's Bible, you. But which parts? When Jesus says to his disciples, go into the town and find a cult and untie it and bring it to me, does that mean that you should? When Jesus says you're to go out with a tunic, and does that mean you've got all, all dressed in tunics? Right? Only one belt and no and sandals and all this? doesn't mean that we've got to shake dust off our feet as we pass through towns that won't have us and only have a purse. Why, why do Christians have to carry purses, especially the men? Well, I know, really. It's, it's a prerequisite of all Christians to be wimps. <laughs> Just check them around. They like that, you see. Which bits of what Jesus is teaching is unique for that time zone Unique for that group of people. And which bits do you apply to everybody? Big problem, isn't it? Peter's teaching you how to interpret the Bible, so we'll press on. <laughs> Paul, Paul is a great evangelist. The Acts of the Apostles, all about evangelism, isn't it? Chapter after chapter, you hear about how they preach the gospel. On the way down here, I sat with two dignitaries in the plain two dignitaries of another denomination. 
all dressed up in ecclesiastical robes. I'm in trouble with libel laws here, so I've got to be careful what I say because it's all being tape recorded, isn't it? And so they, they sat there and uh, I got talking to one of them about what they were doing, etc. He didn't know what I was doing. In fact, just as the plane was coming down, he said, what do you do? All the conversation for the hour before was suddenly embarrassing. And I asked him about their attempts to reach out to the Australian community with the gospel. And he said, we don't do that. I said, why aren't you just looking after your own people? And he said, yeah, that's what we're trying to do, to care for our own people. I said, but don't you want people from outside coming in? He said, well, if anyone wants to come in, they're welcome, but we won't want to go in and invite them. I said, well, now, what about the Acts of the Apostles? That's a good argument, isn't it? I said, because what you are doing sounds very, very... I said it politely. What you are doing sounds very, very different to what the Acts of the Apostles were. Because they're all about going out and getting people in. They are fishers of men, aren't they? It goes all the way through like that. He said, yes. It's very hard to argue on that, isn't it? (laughs) It's like a polite belch. There's no kind of answer. can't even repeat it. Oh, um, well now, Paul's through and through an evangelist, isn't he? All the time out, preaching the gospel. But not only Paul, Peter is like that, Stephen was like that. There he is, faced with a crowd, but they're just about to kill him and he's still preaching the gospel to them. Goes down preaching the gospel. It's marvellous, right? Well now, what about Paul? Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, 11. Now, this is a passage which most modern Australians don't read because it's all about food offered for, uh, for idols. And we think, oh, it's got nothing to do with us, and so we dispense with it. But yet it's one of the most important passages because it has tremendously far-reaching implications in our relationship with each other, in our concern for the world, and so on. But Paul's great theme about the food offered to idols is a theme that runs throughout his life, that is evangelism. His concern is salvation. Some people don't mind eating food offered to idols. Some people are really up in arms about it, so I can't have anything to do with idolatry. What's the right answer? He says the right answer is salvation. You do what will help your brother's salvation. In some circumstances, I get involved with those practices. In other circumstances, I won't have anything to do with those practices. Why? Because I want people's salvation. And so there's this incredible passage that we know well, isn't it, in chapter 9, verse, say, 19 down. Now, to pick it up in chapter 9, verse... Uh, oh, where is it? It's gone. It's gone. I found it this morning. It was brilliant. Verse 12. Ah, yes, verse 12, the second half of it. We do not use this right of collecting money he's talking of there. We do not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Fantastic. I'll put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Jesus. Would you like to say that? See, he's in prison in Philippi. I'm off the subject now. Hang into Corinthians. We'll come back to it. In Philippi, he's writing to the Philippians in in Philippi. He's in prison somewhere else. And he says, it's marvellous I'm in prison now because the Praetorian guards all heard about the gospel. Can you imagine the terrible state the Praetorian guard were? Each night, a different person had to take the duty of being chained up to this raving Christian. <laughs> Paul says, what a marvellous opportunity is. Fantastic. I could never have reached these guards, but God put me in prison, and now they can't get away from me. <laughs> you see, his mentality, his mindset, it's evangelism through and through. He says, now, I know that people are over there preaching the gospel, and they're doing it despite me. They're doing it out of envy and jealousy and rivalry. He says, you beauty, it's marvellous. Because the gospel's being preached. I'm sorry they're doing it for that reason, but I don't care. In the end, it's getting out. Now, how do you say something like that? You say something like that because your one aim and goal in life has got to do with preaching the gospel, hasn't it? It really matters to you. That's like that there, you see. He says, I'll put up with anything. And when he says put up with anything, he doesn't mean putting up with, with English one. He means putting up with prison and shipwreck and... And you say English ones like that too. Well, putting up with real and genuine discomfort. He's not just talking about putting up with Bob Hawke, he's putting up with the Roman Empire. You may say that's not very much different either. But there is his concern. He'll put up with anything for the gospel's sake. Now look what he says in verse 19. Though I am free, chapter 9, verse 19, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone 
to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. Poor man, you see, he's been freed and liberated from the laws of Judaism. He's now able to enjoy the privileges of sweet and sour pork on a Friday night, but he can't do it when he's living with the Jews because they won't be saved. What will they do with a Jew who eats sweet and sour pork on a Friday night? He's out and gone, isn't he? So Paul, Paul, he denies himself the privileges that are available. To the Jew, I become like a Jew to win that. To those under the law, I become as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I'm not free of God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those that are not, uh, those not having the law. To the weak I become weak to win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. It's inconvenience, isn't it? That's what he's saying. I inconvenience myself in any way that others may be saved. And that is an extraordinary thing in verse 23, which I misunderstood for many years. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. I always thought sharing in its blessings meant so that I might see the blessings of the gospel with lots of people converted. I don't think it means that now. Because he goes on to say, don't you know in the race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games does in a strict training. They do it to get a crown that will last, but that will not last rather, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And therefore I don't run like men running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. I beat my body. So I put myself out, I inconvenience myself, I beat my body and make it a slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will might be disqualified for the prize. The blessing of the gospel is his own salvation. This work of putting yourself out for other people's salvation is being Christian. And if you're not willing to put yourself out for other people's salvation, then you're not a follower of Jesus because I don't know whether you've checked out what Jesus did lately, but... He put himself out for other people's salvation, didn't he? Whatever else you want to say Jesus did, though he was rich, yet he became poor, so that we who are poor may become rich. He who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is Jesus about but putting himself out for other people's salvation? What is Paul's life about? It's about putting himself out for other people's salvation. And he says, I do it so that I won't miss out on the blessings of the gospel. Picking up at the end of chapter 10, where he's rounding up his argument. You'll have to follow out how it's got to do with food offered to idols another time. But verse 31 of chapter 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. See, he tries to please everybody in every way. I love being rude to people. Now, that's not the right thing, is it? Paul says, no, no, I try to please people. Why? For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. See, his goal all the time. Just like Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And notice chapter 11, verse 1. I hope this verse comes alive for you at last now. Chapter 11, verse 1. It's in that context that Paul makes the great statement and the great challenge and the great claim. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. See, what I am doing is fundamentally Christ-like when I put myself out for other people's salvation. And so Paul becomes the model Christian. And the model Christian is passionately lifelong concerned with other people's salvation. The one thing you follow Jesus in is to follow Jesus in being a fisher of men. And so the challenge to the apostles to leave their nets and I will make you fishers for men is not a challenge to just some Christians, it's the challenge to all Christians. You can't follow Jesus and not be committed to the salvation of mankind. And so when these ecclesiastical dignitaries tell me that they really have got no interest or attempt or plans or desire to reach out with the gospel of message to the Australians around about them, I know that those men are not converted. For how could you really be converted? and not want to see others saved? How could you be a follower of Jesus and not be laying down your life for other people's salvation? 
and then all the conversation that had taken place beforehand about how they insist on singing their liturgy in sixth century language that no one can understand. Even they have difficulty understanding, but it's the right way of doing it. It all made sense, you see, because they're not interested in people being saved. They're only interested in propping up an old and dead institution. It's the wrong thing altogether. They're not willing to bend to what people need in a new land to bring them to salvation. They're only interested in their organisation. We must bend our lives, ourselves and everything in us. But notice that Paul is not only an evangelist. He is a trainer in evangelism. Not only does he say, I follow Jesus Christ in what I am doing, he says, follow me as I follow Jesus. I am the model of what you should be like. Funny thing is, Paul never says, do as I say, but not what I do. He keeps on saying, do as I say and do as I do, which is just as well because people will always do what you do, irrespective of what you say. And he sets the example, but he does it consciously. Come across with me to Timothy. Having pinched some of the thunder on how to interpret the New Testament from a brother, I'll now pinch some thunder from John Stott on Timothy before he comes so he doesn't know. You see, what's, what is Timothy 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus is about? It's about a very important thing. It's about the bridge between the New Testament age and our age. Because it's at the end of Paul's life, you'll see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's coming to the end of his life, I fought the fight, etc., run the race. He's coming to the end of his life and he gets his young associates, or he's actually sent his young associates out, and he's writing to them and saying, now that I'm going, this is what you're to go on doing. And so he is actually, it's one of the very few places in the New Testament that looks down the time tunnel, down towards us in the 20th century. It's not dominated by the Lord is about to return, although that's there in the, in the pastorals in 1 and 2 Timothy Titus, but it's about the future. And it shows that the planning, the programming, the training in evangelism is part of it. Take uh, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, it's the easiest one to pick up on, we run towards the end of time and I've got several other things to say so I'll just pick it on this one now 2 Timothy 2 2 the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others marvelous that one you see because you've got about four generations of Christians there haven't you Paul has spoken to Timothy who is now to speak to reliable men who will be able to speak to others. Four generations there. You see the mindset of the apostle? It's still training in evangelism, isn't it? Timothy, the gospel doesn't finish with you. I've preached the gospel to you. You're converted. You're saved. Praise God. That's the end of the story. It's not that. Timothy, you've heard what I've had to say. Now say it to others. That they may say it to others. Which is why you've got to pick reliable people going to challenge you about reliability and faithfulness come the last of these talks. There's the reliable people who will convey the message. It's not a new message, it's the message that he has already been taught and that he goes on teaching. Go across to chapter 4 verse 10, chapter 3 verse 10 rather, you, 2 Timothy 3 10, you whoever know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me? You were there, Timothy. You've seen it. You've been with me through it all. And verse 1 of chapter 4, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and the view of the appearing of his coming, I give you this charge, Timothy. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will, not, will come when men will no longer put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they will suit. What's Paul and Timothy about? It's about training in evangelism. As Jesus gathered his disciples to train them to do his work of evangelism, as Paul goes out preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, and gathering disciples around, who will be training and teaching evangelism, to whom he trains and teaches evangelism, and whom he wants to go on evangelising, and he wants them to go on training and teaching other people to evangelise. And so, in the appointment of elders, 
in Titus chapter 1, what are the kinds of elders we need? Amongst other things, in verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine, refuse those who oppose it. You see, there is a message called the gospel. There is a message. It's not new in every generation. It's the same message. It's a deposit, a testimony. And that is to be handed on from generation to generation. That one which was first given by the Lord Jesus himself and taught by his apostles is the gospel that must be taught and proclaimed by us. And we need to be trained and taught, encouraged and helped, modelled and exemplified this preaching of the gospel. Have you read Salt number one? You haven't had a chance to read Salt number two yet, have you? But you've all got it. But Salt number one was a good edition because in it there was a lovely story from Paul White about his learning evangelism at the hands of a famous preacher in Sydney, R.H. Gordon. And it's actually the learning of going with a man and doing it with him. Watching him doing it and sharing with him in open air preaching. You can't beat I hate open air preaching. Not altogether on closed air preaching, but open air preaching is the pits. Door to door visitation is one stage worse. Maybe. If you give me a choice between the two, I'll suicide. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's an appalling thing, but what's Beach Mission about? Beach Mission is not about converting Australia. Beach Mission is about training people like yourselves in getting out there and preaching the gospel. And you know what the thing we've left out of Beach Mission these days, don't you? Public proclamation of the gospel. We don't no longer build a sand pulpit and stand up and preach. Oh, yes, we do. I can see somebody saying, we did, we did. <laughs> I'm glad you did. Because it was one of the great places where evangelists learnt to evangelise. Some people got converted, most didn't. I don't care. Those who went and evangelised like that went on evangelising. There is the great trick. Teaching people. Now it's important to work from principles and we'll be doing it. And one of the great principles is to find out what the gospel itself is. Because if we got that wrong, we're really up the creek, aren't we? Without a paddle too. So that's part of it. We'll be working on some of those principles. Already you see some principles, don't you? For example, in Jesus' training, it's crucial that you are inflexible on godliness. You've got to be different to the world. In Paul's teaching on evangelism, it is crucial that you are very flexible. All things to all men, Jew to the Jew, Greek to the Greek, free to the free, slave to the slave. Very flexible on all the un unimportant things. They're very interesting, you see. On what constitutes the gospel and gospel living, no compromise. And if that makes you an oddball, if that makes you a, an eccentric in your community, well, enjoy your oddball eccentricities. But on things that don't matter, the style of the way we do it, the, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, and just be just like everybody else around about you. Very interesting, you see, principles that already start to emerge just from the, some of the things that we've talked about. But there are certain practicalities that we'll be dealing with in these skills. Now, in these little pamphlets and the booklets we're using, we're not teaching you all about evangelism. Can't do it. It's a whole life. You want to learn evangelism from me? Come up to Sydney, live with us for a few years. After you've been with me for a year or two, you will know my life. You'll know my teaching. You'll know my manner and my way and I will be able to encourage you in your life and your manner and your way. But if you haven't got a couple of years to spend with me, then this is the next best thing that I can offer you. <laughs> Ten hours down here in Melbourne with some of my friends. You see, there's great limits to it. We can't teach you everything about evangelism. So what are we teaching you about? Crucial fundamental points. That's the point. How to get checkmate. There's no point playing chess if you don't know how to get checkmate. Bobby Fisher's book on how to play chess has lesson one, how to get checkmate. 
Obviously, you don't know where you're going. There's no point going, is there? And so what we're talking about is how to lead somebody to Christ. Because many people I know want to evangelise, keen to start up friendships, get into conversations with people, but they don't know where they're going. If the person said, but good sir, what must I do to be saved? They would say, I'll find out for you. <laughs> they really don't know how to actually lead somebody to Christ. Now, two ways to live is about how to lead somebody to Christ. Not about how to start making friendships. Not about a hundred other things that are related to evangelism. It's just about that last moment in the evangelistic process. How to lead somebody to Christ. Now, at that point, of course, it is crucial that you have the gospel straight. I mean, if you've got the wrong information at that point, you really are in difficulty, aren't you, to say nothing of the other person. And so it's really about the content of the gospel at its most crystal clear point. It focuses in at that point. Now, at first it'll irritate you because it's so mechanical. There's learning off by heart and all kinds of dreaded things that you haven't done since you did your arithmetic tables. And in fact, modern maths, you didn't even do it then. And yet, of course, it's crucial that you do that fundamental learning to get the gospel perfectly clear so that you know precisely where you're going at that point in the conversation. Now, if we can teach you that, that will be marvellous. And the Just for Starters books takes you on that very next step. Lovely what Paul was saying about earlier. You know, you bring somebody into the kingdom and you keep them there. Right? In the first few weeks after a person has made such a step, great attacks of the evil one come in. A whole new lifestyle has to be developed. How do we do it? What do we say to people? And so we've got these seven studies to take someone through over the next seven weeks of their first steps in Christianity. I took two years to go through three of the studies with one person. Now, every week I met with him for an hour or two. In other words, it's not a mechanical thing. It doesn't work out like that because people aren't mechanical. But I know the mechanism. And I was able to start off with him and work through subjects with him because we had the materials available to us. Some people I've been through in seven weeks exactly, seven one-hour sessions, and it's all worked smoothly. The other man I'll tell you about some other time, but he's going on in the Lord magnificently. Do you care for the new Christian, you see? So they're the two programs, and we can't teach all that, so we're going to divide the whole, the whole uh, conference in half. And we want you to think out like the blue sheet outlines for you, in that uh, it comes in your materials that I've written, I've given you some clues as to choose which of those seminar groups to be going into, but work with the others on your campus because what we're doing here is, we hope, is even a bigger step. Not just training evangelists, but training evangelists who will train others. Now, most of you are not going to succeed at that, are you? Most of you are such, in such depths of despair about evangelism that just to be trained in evangelism will be marvellous. And if that's what you go home with and you can do some more than you're doing at the moment, praise God, pass the ammunition, let's have another bash at it next year. But for those of you who already can do things, to actually be able to now know how to go home to your campus and not only evangelise, but to train others in evangelism, that would be marvellous indeed, wouldn't it? Let me conclude with one other letter. Another man I met in Cambridge who's now in South Africa. You don't get good news from South Africa, do you? Here's some good news from South Africa. My reason for writing, he says, this time concerns two ways to live. I'm so grateful to you for allowing us to use it here. <laughs> I would have paid him to. <laughs> it's beginning to have two marked effects. One, to sharpen up the doctrine of those who are already converted but badly taught. Two, to lead to actual practice of evangelism. So far, we have trained, he is the staff worker for the AFES in South Africa called the Student Christian Association. So far, we have trained about 80 students nationwide. I have first taught our staff members and then we've heard from some 20, uh, our staff members, and we have already heard of some 20 professions of faith in direct consequence to the using of the material. Next year, we're planning an expansion of the, of the scale of the program to every one of the campuses, always using trained leaders, of course. So well has this caught on that we're beginning to have widespread interest, including in other Southern African groups. In February, I'm going to Lusaka and Zambia and to a conference of IFES, and then he asks me permission to do it. Bless his heart. <laughs> you see, it's not the foolproof. It's not the world's greatest system. I haven't written that one yet. <laughs> it's not that. It's nothing like that I'm pretending. But if it can get you going... If it can get you up and moving, even if it's got little funny kind of 
training wheels at the back that might embarrass you. Isn't that great news? I hope that you'll really enjoy the workshops. I know you'll hate them. I know they'll be hard work. They'll be embarrassing. They'll be me, like me falling off the sailboard yet again, plunging into stupidities, feeling difficult about all the rest of it. But when you get sailing, isn't it a wonderful feeling? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the clear example of your son, Jesus. Thank you that he did come to save us. And as your saved people, Father, help us to follow his example, his passion for evangelism, his passion that led him to inconvenience himself totally and absolutely for the sake of salvation of other people. Thank you for those who laboured over us in the gospel and the inconvenience we put them to, that they bore that, that we might be saved. Give to us, Father, that love that Jesus has for other people that will lead us to put ourselves out for their salvation. And give us, Father, that integrity, that love of your kingdom and righteousness that we may be willing to be different to the world around about us, to have a real message to preach. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.